All right. Well, so pray for my voice. Got seasonal allergies right now. I sound a little bit like uh, John Piper, which is okay. Uh, last service, I sounded like Robert F. Kennedy Jr., which wasn't as uh, easy to listen to. So, hey, this is week 10 of our series through the most famous sermon of all time. Uh, in the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus presented his statement of belief and behaviors for life in the kingdom of God. And I believe that most of us in this room are very, very familiar with the teaching of the Sermon on the Mount. In fact, I would bet that all of us in this room right now have memorized part of the Sermon on the Mount. I mean, does this sound familiar? Our Father in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Like we've committed that to memory. Like this sermon is a big deal. Now, if there was a favorite Bible memory verse for people who don't read the Bible, it would be found in today's passage in the Sermon on the Mount in Matthew chapter 7. You can turn there. In fact, if there was a favorite command of Jesus by people who usually completely disregard the commands of Jesus, it would be the command found in Matthew 7, verse 1, that says, Judge not that you be not judged. I mean, think about it. People who have like little understanding of the message of the Bible have committed this one verse to memory. Like, this is the only Bible verse I ever had my mom quote to me. I mean, she quoted this Bible verse to me while wagging her finger, judge not. It's kind of crazy. Like, have you ever had someone that is not a believer quote the Bible to you and you think, like, where did you hear that? Like, is there a seminar that I missed? Like, did you go to a conference of skeptics and they said, everybody memorize Matthew 7, 1. It really messes with the Christians. Like, is that where you got that? Like, Matthew 7, 1 has the uh, distinction of being both uh, the command that's most quoted by unbelievers and the command that believers are most accused of violating. You see, in our culture, we believe as a culture that everyone has the right to do whatever they want to do. Therefore, if the church or a Christian or a preacher ever calls out sin for what it is, this verse is quoted. Hey, judge not. In fact, you'll hear it on the news sometimes as they talk about some hot social issue and the response of the church. And you'll hear people, once again, who have no regard for Christ make statements about the Bible and about Jesus as if they're best buddies. Well, you know, Jesus was all about love. I mean, the message of Jesus is all about love and tolerance well, and recycling and whatever you want to add to it, right? Whatever is a big deal to me must have been a big deal to him, or at least I will take that baggage and make him carry it for me. Like our culture believes what it wants to believe so it can do what it wants to do. Now, few verses in the Bible have been more 
completely misunderstood and misapplied than this one. Which is ironic to me that uh, the one verse they love the most is the one verse they misunderstand the most. So when Jesus says, judge not lest you be judged, what exactly does He mean? And, and just as importantly, like what doesn't He mean? Like, Does Jesus expect all of us to kind of mind our own business? Is that what Jesus is saying by this verse? Hey, just, hey, just do your own thing. You focus on you, mind your business, and everything's going to work out. Is that what he meant? Like, does Jesus, is he saying that it's somehow wrong to make a moral judgment of any kind? It's, it's wrong to have an opinion about anyone else's behavior? Like, is having discernment a violation of Matthew chapter 7, verse 1? Well, of course not. But how do you know? I mean, after all, Jesus said, judge not that you be not judged. Well, here are some important principles to remember. Like whenever you read something in the Bible that confuses you, there are two important steps that you need to take to bring greater clarity to that moment. The first one is this, is you need to understand the context. Understand the context. Like this means that you should apply the same principles that you would use in following a conversation with a friend or reading a good book. Like context is simply the circumstances that form the setting in which something is said or taught, right? Like it's, it's like knowing the surroundings. Like if you're in a conversation with your husband or wife and you tune out for a couple moments, and then you tune back in, that's when arguments happen. That's when there's misunderstanding and, and disagreement because you weren't even tuned in. And you try to act like you were, and then, they, then you admit that you weren't, and now you're caught in a lie, and it's just a big mess. Guys, we do that with the Bible. Like we take one verse out of context, and we're like, what does this verse mean? Well, you need to ask some questions like, who is speaking? In this passage, to whom are they speaking? Why are they speaking to him? What's the historical setting? Is this the Old Testament, the New Testament? Is this, is this historical narrative? Is this the teaching from the epistles? Like you need to, if you don't understand a certain verse, read the verse before it. Read the verse after it. You know, read the complete paragraph or the whole chapter. Maybe read the whole book or letter. Like you need, first of all, to, you should need to, you need to really understand the context. And the second thing you need to do is look to commentary. And by commentary, I don't mean you need to go out and buy a study Bible, though that would probably be a great idea. And I don't need, mean you need to buy a separate commentary on the Bible. You already have a great commentary on the Bible. It's called the Bible. Like the Bible is the absolute best commentary on the Bible. I mean, the Bible isn't simply one book. It's a whole library of books. Like written by over 40 authors over a period of about 1,500 years in three languages. It covers countless stories, and yet there is one story woven through all the others, the story of Christ. Like the Bible references itself over and over and over again, bringing greater clarity the more you read of it. Jordan Peterson calls the Bible the first 
hyperlinked text because of the massive number of cross-references within the Bible itself. There are 340,000 cross-references in the Bible. Maybe y'all have seen this graphic that captures just 65,000 of those cross-references, changing the color for how many times it's mentioned and where it's mentioned. Like, it's phenomenal. Like, the Bible is one story written by one person, the Holy Spirit, using 40 human authors. And since the Bible is the best commentary on the Bible, whenever you read it and you read something that confuses you, just start asking questions like, are there places, other places in the Bible where this issue is addressed? Like, with greater clarity? Are, are there places in the Bible where this verse is referenced and then commented on by Paul or Peter or even Christ? Like what else does this speaker or this writer have to say about this issue or topic? Like does the Bible as a whole address this issue or topic? Like when you read something that you think is just an utter contradiction to the rest of the Bible... <laughs> Read the context and look at the commentary that is the Word of God. Like I remember years ago when I was 19 years old, I was on the streets of Atlanta sharing the Gospel with the man who discipled me, Charles Ellis. And the man we were talking to was about 40 years old. I gave him a Gospel track and said, you know, could you read this? It explains how you can know Jesus Christ in a personal way. And his response was, you believe the Bible? Man, the Bible is filled with errors and contradictions. At this point, I'm maybe a little over a year old as a Christian. I didn't know what to say to this 40-year-old man. I just was like, like, like a deer in headlights. And Charles Ellis steps up and he says, really? Uh, and he pulls a Bible out from his back pocket. Here, show me one. And the guy said, why? I mean, I don't, I'm not a Bible guy. Like, I don't know chapter and verse. I just know that the Bible is filled with errors and contradictions. Okay, well, I've read the Bible uh, a few dozen times. So, could you just, is it Old Testament, New Testament? Is it history? Is it Psalms? Is it the teaching of Christ? Is it within the Gospels? Like, give me a general idea. I bet I can find it. And he said, well, I don't know. I don't know where it's at. And Charles just said, have you ever read this? And he said, no. And he goes, well, maybe you should read it before you start making statements with such authority. And he gave him his Bible. Guys, I think that's like, he put him on, put him instead of being on the defensive, he he came in on the offense. Listen, this book is true. Like it is remarkable that one story without error is presented through this book we call the Bible. And so, once again, when we read something like, Judge not that you be not judged. Like, what in the world does that mean? Well, let's stand together as I read the passage and we listened to the words of Jesus and listen to the context. Jesus says, Judge not that you be not judged, for with the judgment you pronounce, you will be judged. And with the measure you use, it will be measured to you. Why do you see the speck that is in your brother's eye, but do not notice the log that is in your own eye? Or how can you say to your brother, let me take that speck out of your eye when there is a log in your own eye? 
you hypocrite. First take the log out of your own eye and then you will see clearly to take the speck out of your brother's eye. Do not give dogs what is holy. And do not throw your pearls before pigs, lest they trample them underfoot and turn to attack you. This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated. So when Jesus says, judge not to his disciples, he means simply don't size people up and write them off. Like certainly we're supposed to be able to recognize sin for what it is. We're supposed to be able to discern between good and evil, between right and wrong, between good fruit and bad fruit. But Jesus makes a distinction here between acts of judgment like that and an attitude of judgmentalism. Because there is a world of difference between discernment and condemnation. And really often it just comes down to our tone and what we're looking for. I remember a parenting uh, class I was in one time where the teacher said, try to catch your kids doing something good. And I got to tell you, that was a mind-blowing concept to me. Catching my kids doing something good? I've never seen my kids doing something good. (laughs) I'd never looked for it. And guess, as I started to look for it, I saw it over and over and over again. I think sometimes we just have this tone of, you know, I'm just going to look for how jacked up the world is around us, how, how inconsistent people's lives are, how just, how out of shape they are, how foolish they are with their money, how bad their kids are. Like, are you looking at the world with a gracious, like, eye or with a judgmental eye? John Stott writes of this passage, he says, the command to judge not is not a requirement to be blind, but rather a plea to be generous. Jesus does not tell us to cease to be men by suspending our critical powers, but to renounce the presumptuous ambition to be God by setting ourselves up as judges. Don't size people up and write them off. You don't know them. Like you don't know their heart. You don't know what motivates them. You don't even know very often if you're right about issues. Don't size people up and write them off. Like it goes without saying that none of us like being judged. But guys, honestly, we all love judging people. It's so fun. It's so satisfying to go out to a restaurant with your wife or your husband and just look at these fools all around you. Like they're so messed up. You leave a dinner at a restaurant feeling so much better about yourself, don't you? You go to church and you leave feeling so much better about yourself because you sat with just the right people who aren't as good as you. I mean, guys, we're so judgmental. It is so bound in our hearts. We look at folks and say, oh my goodness, what a, what a fool. I would never do that. Like we look at people in the world and we see what they're chasing after. I would never do that. Well, win the lottery and tell me what you wouldn't do. 
You have all these people who say, man, if I won the lottery, I would support world missions. We'd plant churches. We'd plant orphanages. I'd build that building for Hutto Bible. I mean, we'd do so much good. And then you win the lottery. And within a year or two, you're divorced. You're married to somebody 30 years younger than you. And you have hair plugs. Like what happened? Like did the lottery make you bad? Or did it just allow you to be the person you always were in your heart of hearts. We sit in judgment on people because they're getting away with the things that we don't have the courage to do. Because our hearts are just as dark. Sometimes we sit in judgment because guys, we're so self-righteous. And people who are self-righteous are rarely self-aware. I've never met anyone who's told me, you know what my problem is? I'm just self-righteous. I mean, that's my problem. No, the self-righteous person just thinks they're righteous. Like they think that there's some kind of hierarchy of spiritual sophistication that sets them above the others. I mean, they're not saying that they have it all together, but they do have the big things together. Like the things that really matter. Like God's still working on them, right? Like just, just a little bit here and there to get them perfectly like Jesus, but they're almost there. Like in our heart of hearts, our view of ourselves very often is skewed and is inflated. In fact, I have found that we tend to judge others from the vantage point of our successes. Like if there is an area of your life as a Christian or as a parent or as a steward that you have down, that you've kind of mastered it, like I rock at this, that becomes for you the measurement of spiritual success. Like I've seen it over and over again. Like whatever we have something down, even if it's just for five minutes, when we have mastered it, whatever it is becomes the true mark of spirituality. Like I've been in churches where men and women go through Financial Peace University, which is a great class. And they get their financial houses in order. And 30 seconds later, they're sitting in judgment on every other fool in the church. Can you believe they bought that new car? Can you believe that they're letting their kids wear those kind of clothes that are just so expensive? I mean, their kids are still growing. What a waste of money. And they just sit in judgment. I've seen it with people who take a parenting class and get their house in order and get their discipline down for their kids. And then they come to church 30 seconds later and sit in judgment on all of our kids that are terrible. Right? We go to a restaurant and we see all these other out of control kids and we just feel like they know what they need. They need me to instruct them. <laughs> or maybe you go through something like Weight Watchers or some other health thing or you begin to work out and exercise and then you start noticing, is everybody fat except me? And of course, you're the measure of when it gets like just right. Like you don't see the people who are lighter than you or in better shape, just the ones who are in worse shape. Like we're all so judgmental. We're all so broken. And we need to guard our hearts against that. And we really as parents need to guard against that pharisaical tone in our families because often our kids will grow up with us making wise choices for them and they as a result will think they're wise and they're not. And it's just such a dangerous place to be. So we need to be on guard because we're so judgmental, we're so jealous, we're so insecure, we're so self-righteous. And Jesus says, 
Don't size people up and write them off. Do not judge, period. Only there's not a period. There's a comma. Do not judge or you will be judged. Jesus says, do not judge because what goes around comes around. Judge not that you be not judged for with the judgment you pronounce, you will be judged. And with the measure you use, it will be measured to you. It's like Jesus is warning against judging others in a way that we would not want applied to us, kind of like the golden rule of judging. You know, judge unto others as you would have them judge unto you. So how would you like to be judged? Like, how would you like to be evaluated? As a parent, as a husband, a wife, as a Christian, as a student, as a dad, a mom? How would you like to be measured? Like, would you ever in a million years dare to pray, Lord, judge me as I have judged my fellow man? Man, I certainly wouldn't pray that. In fact, clip that out of the audio. I don't even want it going out on the internet. It's dangerous, right? Judge me as I judge my fellow man. Absolutely not. You see, Jesus is warning that the tone of your life will become the tone of your judgment. Sinclair Ferguson says this should be our tone. The heart that has tasted the Lord's grace and forgiveness will always be restrained in its judgment of others. It has seen itself deserving judgment and condemnation before the Lord, and yet, instead of experiencing His burning anger, has tasted His infinite mercy. Is that the tone of your life? Like, Do you just have this thought going through the day as you see jacked up people? Lord, they just need Jesus. Just like I just need Jesus. Thank You for the grace that You've shown me. And because You experience the grace of Christ, you just it just pours out of You. You just can't help it. Like, do you find it easy to spot the speck in someone else's eye? Like, who do you think you are? Paul Tripp says in, I think just about every one of the books he's written, he'll make this statement, whether it's about marriage or parenting or whatever. He will say, no one gives grace like someone who is absolutely convinced that they need it for themselves. No one gives grace like someone who has experienced it and who has tasted it themselves. Guys, that is true, and that should set the tone of our lives. So why do you see the speck that is in your brother's eye and do not notice the log that is in your own eye? And how can you say to your brother, let me take that speck out of your eye when there is a log in your own eye? At this point, I am confident that disciples were laughing and Jesus was probably laughing. Because this is a ridiculous illustration to think that you have this log, this beam stuck in your eye and you're taking the time to point out sawdust near somebody else's eyelid. Like it's a ridiculous illustration. But this is not a casual observation. It suggests that this person is paying close attention to someone else and though it's minor to them, it is glaring. 
As Stott writes, we have a fatal tendency to exaggerate the faults of others and minimize the fault or gravity of our own. Here's our problem. When we have logs in our eyes, we, we think they're just specks. But when people have specks in theirs, we think they're logs. Like their issue is way worse than my issue. Their problem is way worse than my problem. In fact, it's interesting that the speck in my brother's eye and the log that is in my eye are made of the same material. It's just a little bit smaller. I think Jesus is probably implying that we spot certain sins in other people because those sins are in us as well. Like we, we seem to treat people the most harshly when we see sin in them that hides in our own hearts. Like it irritates us. It drives us crazy because it's in us too. Paul writes in Romans 2, you have no excuse, you who pass judgment on someone else, for at whatever point you judge another, you are condemning yourself because you who pass judgment do the same things. So is the lesson that Jesus is teaching here simply mind your business? Because if it is, guys, that's great. We love that message. But he goes on like that's not where he ends the message. In fact, that's just where he begins because his very next words in verse 5 are, you hypocrite. First, take the log out of your own eye. And the whole Sermon on the Mount where he's called people hypocrites over and over, always referring to the scribes, the Pharisees, the teachers of the law. This is the only time he calls out Christians as hypocrites, you hypocrite, first take the log out of your own eye. Inspection of others without introspection of myself turns me into a hypocrite. Inspection without introspection. I can see your fault, but I can't see my own. I see your problems, your sin, your out of control family or lifestyle or health or finances or whatever, but I can't look at my own stuff. It turns me into a hypocrite. I love D.A. Carson's honest response to the words of Jesus here. He just writes, the more I reflect on this passage, the more I find I am self-condemned. And then he says, God, please grant me the grace to practice what I preach. See, at this point, you might think, okay, now I get it. God uses the faults of my brother our sister, to expose the sin that is in my heart so I can repent of it, confess it, and then move on, right? That's the lesson, right? But that's not where Jesus stops. He, he says, you hypocrite, first take the log out of your own eye and then you will see clearly to take the speck out of your brother's eye. Christian love is not blind and discernment is not unloving. Jesus teaches His followers in John chapter 7, verse 24, to judge with righteous judgment. And so don't size people up and write them off, but also don't size people up and then just walk away. Like know their faults and not help them. Know where they're failing and not assist them. Don't do that. Jesus is saying, hey, take the log out of your eye in preparation for helping them with theirs. And see, a person who's been grieved over the log in their own eye, who's been humbled 
by their own sin is like the perfect person to help somebody remove that speck from their eye. Paul tells us in Galatians 6.1, Brothers, if anyone is caught in any transgression, you who are spiritual should restore them in a spirit of gentleness, but keep watch over yourself, lest you too be tempted. And of course, this is where the message of Jesus gets really hard. This is certainly not easy, and it's the last thing we really want to do. Like, I love recognizing the faults of others. That's a blast. But I don't want to talk to them about it. I don't want to actually go to them and help them. Like, if that's what I'm being called to, no thanks. In fact, Jesus told His disciples in Luke chapter 3, if your brother sins, rebuke him. And the disciples responded this way, Lord, increase our faith. And you're like, what? Like, what does that even mean? How is that a response? Jesus tells them something to do and their response is, Lord, increase our faith. That's Christianese for, hey, uh, yeah, Lord, we're probably not going to do that. Because that's really difficult. And that's super awkward. And I don't want to have those conversations. And isn't that what we hired a pastor for? I think sometimes the disciples probably wanted to say to Jesus, hey, could you just talk to us in parables? Because this clarity is killing us. Because the teaching of Jesus is so clear. It's so in your face. It's so challenging. And that's what the disciples are hearing here. You hypocrite. First, take that log out of your own eye. Then you're going to be able to see clearly to take the speck out of your brother's eye. You see, it helps in understanding this to understand what Jesus is trying to stop. He's trying to stop in these hypocritical Christians, the spirit of the Pharisee. The Pharisees judged others to make themselves look good. Instead, Jesus is teaching His followers to judge themselves so that they can help others actually be good. And so which one of those sounds like you? Like, are you willing to help in the restoration of a brother or sister in Christ who is off course spiritually. Because we have a responsibility to one another. In fact, note the repeated use of the word brother over and over. Jesus is talking about Christians helping other Christians where they are failing. Like your personal life is my business. Like you know that, right? I mean, if you're a Christian, you know that. Like your personal life, your family life, like your, your, what's going on in your heart, your struggles with sin, that's my business as a brother in Christ and as a pastor. But my personal life is your business because we're a family. We're in this together. That's what the church is all about. And that's the kind of community Jesus is calling these new citizens of the kingdom into. Like to take personal responsibility for each other. If your brother is in sin, you go to him. Like you restore him. You help him. And so that, if the sermon ended right there, that would be great news. Kinda. It's hard. It's awkward. But Jesus continues... And he adds this final enigmatic statement. Do not give dogs what is holy. And do not throw your pearls before pigs. 
lest they trample them underfoot and turn and attack you. Like Jesus has said, hey, don't judge people except for the dogs and the pigs. Like it almost seems like a contradiction, but what Jesus is doing here is, is he's providing balance in our personal interactions. As D.A. Carson writes, after warning us against judgmentalism, Jesus warns us against being undiscriminating, especially in our choice of people to whom we present the wonderful riches of the Gospel. Jesus is saying, as you interact with people, don't force the Gospel down the throat. Especially those who are not simply unreceptive, but who are actually hostile to our witness. Like, don't size people up and write them off. Don't size people up and walk away. But don't size people up and then disregard your discernment. Be wise as serpents, but innocent as doves. And so move on to our to others who have receptive ears. By the way, that's what our team in East Asia is doing right now as they go from village to village and house to house. Like they're praying for discernment. They're praying for that man or woman of peace. And when people aren't receptive, and especially when they're hostile, they move on. Just like Jesus said to His disciples in, in Matthew 10 when He sent them on the first mission trip, He said, hey, when you're received, great. Let your peace rest on that household. But if someone will not listen to your words, shake the dust off of your feet and leave that house and that town. Truly, it will be better for them. It will be better for Sodom and for Gomorrah on the day of judgment than for that town. Understand, this is not giving up on people. This is giving them over to God. Because only God can reach them and God can do what we can't do. Like it took Jesus Himself to witness to Saul of Tarsus. Like you don't read any Gospel encounters with Paul in the book of Acts until he's on the road to Damascus. He has seen Christians suffer for their faith. He has seen the powerful witness of Stephen and all of that just continued just to harden his heart until Jesus got his full attention. Like what did Jesus do to get your full attention? I think it's important in this teaching to note that Jesus takes five verses to say, quit judging people and being judgmental and standing in the place of God. And He uses one verse to say, hey, Watch out for these dogs and pigs. <laughs> Probably because we have a five to one problem with judging versus being undiscriminating. So, with that said, let me pray for us and prepare our hearts for communion. Father, I thank you for this table and for what it represents. That as we gather weekly around this table, uh, it preaches a message to us. In fact, as we take the bread and we take the cup, Lord, we're preaching the Gospel to ourselves that our sin was so bad that the only way to deal with it was the death of Your Son. That our rebellion against You was so severe that the hardness of our hearts was so unbreakable, making us so unredeemable that it took the death 
of the one and only pure and holy Son of God to purchase my redemption, our salvation. Lord, I pray now that as we come to this table, Lord, would we, as we drink this cup, drink deeply of Your grace? Would it be a reminder for us of the grace poured out for us as we take this bread? Would we be reminded of a body broken because of our sin? And would we leave here this morning with a, a, a greater passion for grace and forgiveness that will spill over into the lives of others. We pray through Christ our Lord. Amen.